Good evening and welcome. We're glad you're here. We want to start this evening by singing all creatures of our God and King. We'll sing the first, the fourth, and the fifth verses. You should have that paper passed out to you. All creatures of our God and King. <laughs> This evening, if you're not from here, you wonder where the bathrooms are. Down this hall, there's kind of an intersection, door right and left. I know it can be embarrassing to get up here and walk through these doors. So if you want, you can go through those doors, which leads to a gym, and just follow the wall, and then it comes around that way. And then you can, we'll still see you through the, <laughs> through the glass doors, but it's a little less embarrassing, you know, to do it that way. Uh, but we are really, really honored and glad to have uh, Dr. Serfati with us. Uh, really looking forward uh, to his talk. And I told him that uh, we are a good Baptist, meaning that we're getting done around 7-ish. Because um, we did not put an end time. So if you really have to go, you can go, but you probably shouldn't. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to turn it over to uh, the good doctor, and we'll go from there. Father in heaven, again, we are thankful that we have this opportunity to gather together as believers. And Father, as always, we are so grateful that what we believe concerning the Bible Christ, salvation, everything in the Bible is true, that there is great substance to our faith, that you've not asked us to believe blindly. And so, Father, we are excited to hear uh, the presentation that we've made tonight. We thank you, Father, for the men and women you've raised up through the years who have great intellectual capacities that have used it to your glory and your honor. And so, Lord, we are eager to learn and to understand that we may continue to grow and praise your name and thank you, Lord, for who you are and your majestic uh, wonders of creation. Bless now our time together, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, Doctor, you. you're on. Thank you very much. 
Oh, well, thank you guys for coming uh, t tonight. I appreciate you all making the journey to come here uh, to learn about this very interesting and important topic, I think. Uh, just to, to uh, say, I'm from Creation Ministries International. We have, it's an international organization, about seven offices around the world. I began in the Australian office, but I've been with the American office since 2010. And I think this ministry hires more PhD scientists than any other Christian ministry, I think. I mean, because you're probably told in the government schools there aren't any real scientists who doubt evolution or believe the Bible. I'm certainly a real scientist. I'll show you. I've got to, here is uh, what I did my PhD on, uh, shining laser light onto selenium ring molecules, published work in secular journals, specialist journals, as you see here. And in fact, science itself grew out of a Christian worldview, the idea of a, of a divine lawmaker, the God of an order, not author of confusion, who gave us dominion over creation. And to have dominion, we had to investigate to find out how it worked. So most of the founders of modern science were biblical Christians. Now, I guess by now you know not from this country, right? <laughs> so I'd better give you a geography lesson to show you where I came from. Yeah, I did move over to this country in 2010. I took a U.S. citizenship. I've got, I've got three. I've got New Zealand, Australia, and U.S. citizenship now. I collect passports, uh, like some people collect uh, baseball cards, I suppose. Um, now, one reason we moved here is that we have granddaughters, uh, two granddaughters who live here in Florida. I actually live in Florida now to be closer to them, but even back in Georgia, eight-hour drive was preferable to flying 9,000 miles across the ocean. And I'm also a retired chess master. Sometimes I play like this from memory. I'm playing these 12 guys from the memory. This is a creation conference back in Australia. As uh, so I'm playing these 12 guys, I'm here. This guy is telling me what they're doing, and, he, and I'm telling him what move to make for me because uh, every square has a letter and a number. That's how you can communicate. Um, now, they were good people in my time. Another thing about me, I'm also ethnically Jewish. My name is the Hebrew word for Frenchman. So I can tell Jewish and French jokes and get away with it, hopefully. <laughs> uh, but why would a good Jewish guy like me believe in Jesus or Yeshua to give you his Hebrew name? Well, for one reason, he fulfilled many prophecies in the Hebrew Bible that you call the Old Testament or the Tanakh in Hebrew. And some of those prophecies have an expiration date. And one of the many books we have on the table here is about how Jesus fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament in his first coming. Now, we have these books and videos because we know very well you can't remember everything you hear in one, one session. And also, people forget. And also, I think it's too good to keep to yourself. That's why we have these books so you can share it with other people after you leave here. Now, a lot of my time is spent dealing with this man, because you could say he's a patron saint of the religion of the government schools. Make no mistake, I mean, the ACLU brag about getting religion out of the schools. No, they didn't. They got rid of Christianity, but replaced it with a counterfeit religion you can call evolutionary humanism. That says everything made itself. We rearranged pond scum. There's no God who made us and therefore owns us and therefore has the right to make the rules for us and loves us and makes rules for our goods. And said, now we can choose our own gender, apparently. But the thing is, if kids are only getting the evolutionary story and not hearing the alternative in either the church or the home, uh, where do you think they're going to go? They're going to end up believing that evolution is science and, and Christianity is religion. And is it any wonder we see a huge dropout rate of kids who went to church homes 
Um, but the thing is, it doesn't have to be this way, and we actually interviewed certain uh, some university students who were raised in the church to find out what actually made the difference. To creation or evolution, which do you believe? Um, I'd probably have to say evolution. Evolution? Uh, evolution. Did you have any organization in that kind of helped you understand that biblical creation might be scientifically viable? No. I'm a Christian and I believe that uh, there's a God who created this universe. Did your church leaders, student leaders, did they bring in any creation teaching that showed you there was scientific evidence to support the Bible's account of creation? Uh, yes. Do you still go to church now? Yes, sir. I believe in the creation six days. You're not convinced by the evolutionary arguments in your biology classes? No. Being able to discuss creation openly at church uh, has helped strengthen you in that area, prepare you uh, for what you've learned here at college about evolution? Yes. So it really makes a difference if, if, if your kids are taught creation and know not only what you believe, but why you believe it. It makes a difference. And one way you can be connected to it is our website. And if you're taking notes, um, our website is creation.com. hope it's, you remember that one. Uh, it's got about 15,000 articles on it. It's got a search button. You can find things. It's updated every day with something new. Uh, like, for instance, the latest missing link. We'll have an answer to that in the next few days. But just remember, they found the missing link last year and the year before that, didn't they? So what happened to those? They don't believe those anymore. I mean, most of the stuff I learned at school to prove evolution, the evolutionists don't believe anymore, okay? So, and for instance, when Roe v. Wade was repealed, I wrote a very big detailed article on that. That was on our, our website. And you can be sign up to, uh, with our free email newsletter called the Infobytes. And we're going to pa start passing some clipboards here, which will give you a chance to sign up. And we promise not to spam you or to sell your address or to give your address to a third party. We protect your privacy. So if you put your name and your email, then we can send the, you can be on it. But also, if you put your postcode, we can tell you of any creation speaker in the area, if you're interested in turning up. Who knows, some of you might be here because you saw this in an email newsletter. Now, as for the, some of the books here, I just want to recommend my, my own commentary, 800-page uh, commentary. It's the only commentary in the world that talks about dinosaurs, for instance. And for instance, design and creation, evidence for the flood, but also what does Genesis mean? How all the doctrines of Christianity had their beginnings in the early chapters of Genesis, and how did Jesus and the New Testament authors understand Genesis? And we also have this uh, video series based on the commentary, the Genesis Academy, a 12-part video series. Now, I'm going to allow a, a Q&A time after my main talk, if you're interested in sticking around. Um, I believe this nice church is offering refreshments and nice things as well, uh, so do stick around for that. It's only fair I should ask you a question, isn't it? Okay, what was Jesus' first miraculous act recorded in the Gospels? Mm, yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's your warrant of wine was the first sign to his disciples in his earthly ministry, okay? That's what it says. It's qualified there. But then go back a chapter, what does it tell you? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Well, who is the Word here? It's Jesus. It tells you, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So you see, even before he was born, he was a creator of the universe. This has to be the first miracle in the Gospels, right? 
And it's pretty important because John wrote his gospel so people believe in Jesus and have eternal life, but he starts off showing Jesus is God and creator. And that's uh, good enough for him, it's good enough for us. And also, God spoke through various prophets in the Old Testament. I think Americans say Isaiah, Australians say Isaiah, and they're both wrong because the Hebrew is Yeshayahu. So God spoke through Yeshayahu and said, I am the Lord, or Jehovah Yahweh, and apart from me there is no Savior. So if Jesus is Savior, he must be God himself, okay? But he's also fully man. He's a mediator between God and man, so he's both God and man. And this is foretold by the same prophet. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. Now, the Hebrew here, Goel, actually means kinsman, Redeemer. And it's translated that way in other parts of the Bible, like the book of Ruth, which tells you the qualification of a kinsman, Redeemer. One of them is that he must be related by blood to those whom he redeems. So if Jesus is our kinsman, Redeemer, he must be our blood relative somehow. Well, how can this be? Well, we actually have two of the Gospels give his genealogy, his, his ancestry line. See, Matthew, writing to Jews, he starts from the first Jew, Abraham. Then he goes through to King David, and then this line of, of kings of Israel and Judah. And there's a dotted line here because Joseph wasn't the biological father because Jesus was born of a virgin. So Luke takes care of the biological side. Luke's gospel is actually through Mary's line. That's why the names are a bit different. So Luke goes back with Jesus to Mary, uh, to David through another son called Nathan, and then to Abraham. But see, Luke wants to show the common humanity of Jesus, so he doesn't stop at Abraham. See, Abraham didn't drop out of the sky in Genesis 12. He had ancestors. And you find those in Genesis 11 and 5. And Luke treats those guys as just as historical as Abraham and beyond. See, Abraham was son of Terah, son of Nahor, etc., to son of Noah. And then all the way back up to Adam, who is called the son of God and not the son of an ape. <laughs> so you can't mix evolution in the Gospels. Gospels are very clear. Adam is a direct creation of God. He's the first man. He's the ancestor of Jesus. And he's the ancestor of everyone else on earth who's ever lived. No matter what race, people, group, country, nation you come from, you come from Adam. And therefore, you can be saved through Jesus, your kinsman, redeemer. You throw out a historical Adam, you throw out the kinsman, redeemer idea. And you throw out missionary work. So why isn't missionaries overseas unless they also come from Adam? So this is no side issue. And then we find that Jesus said things like, Scripture cannot be broken. Now, is Genesis part of Scripture? Last time I checked it was, right? So Genesis can't be broken, right? And how often he would say, it is written, and quote Scripture. And for Jesus, what Scripture said is what God said. He rebuked the Sadducees, saying, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? What you read in Scripture is what God has spoken to us. And you know what the word Bible stands for? It's basic instructions before leaving earth. Now, the thing is, the Bible is not is a history book. See, it's, it's theology, it's morality, but they're all connected to the history. You can't separate them. The resurrection is a doctrine of Christianity, but it's also a fact of history. And same with marriage. It's a, doc, it's a morality issue, but when Jesus was asked about that, he goes back to where marriage began in history. And he says, from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother Hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. So what's he quoting here? 
He's quoting Genesis 1 and 2 as real history about a real man and woman as a foundation for marriage. And this is pretty important to understand the marriage issue. I mean, because there's some people who claim that Jesus said nothing about gay marriage. And you find them in liberal theological cemeteries, I mean seminaries. But quite clearly, um, Jesus says marriage is one man and one woman. That's the only type of marriage Jesus recognizes. And you see, uh, the two become one flesh. So one man for one wife, not one man for four wives. Uh, Man leaves his father and mother because Adam, the first man, had no father and mother. Uh, Two become one flesh because Eve was taken from Adam's flesh. So when you have the history, all the morality makes sense. If you abandon this history, then the morality is nothing to, to, to stand on either. And some of the leading theistic evolutionists are actually um, support LGBT pride. I mean, like Francis Collins, he claims to be an evangelical, but I don't think evangelicals support what God's called sin. He also supports uh, research with abortive uh, baby tissue too. So uh, there's the thing, you, you abandon Genesis history, it's not long before you abandon Genesis morality as well. And just a bit of science for you, is the rib is the one bone in the body that will grow back. And modern surgeons discovered this when they used ribs for, gra- for building bo- for bones, for grafting in other places, and the rib would keep on coming back. So it means that God knew what he was doing when he took the rib out. Adam didn't have to spend his whole life with a missing rib. Now, of course, people want to tell me that Genesis is a very difficult passage to understand. I think it's a very easy passage to understand. I mean, you've got days of creation. They've got an evening and a morning and a number. That makes it pretty clear. And then also God, when he wrote the Ten Commandments, told us what he meant in Genesis 1. Because he gave the Sabbath command, six days you should labor, and the seventh day is a Sabbath. The reason for the Sabbath command, the the working week week and the the day of rest, is because God made everything in six days and rested on the seventh. So here he's telling us here what he meant in Genesis 1. If it wasn't already clear from the text already, already, he's told us directly what he meant. I mean, if the days were long periods of time, well, how do you have an evening and morning if it's a long period of time? But then imagine days were billions of years long. We had to work for six billion years and rest for one billion years. Nice long weekend to look forward to, I guess. Mm. Now, there are people who rebuke me to tell me, well, forget about Genesis and Adam and Eve and just preach the gospel. Okay, then, let's follow the example of the greatest gospel preacher of all time. Not Billy Graham, the Apostle Paul, fair enough. So how did the Apostle Paul preach the gospel? Well, let's look in 1 Corinthians 15, which is his great gospel and resurrection chapter. He's the gospel uh, by which you are being saved, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, the gospel is good news. But you can't understand good news unless you know there's bad news. We need salvation because we're, we're sinners. And you see, Paul grounds the gospel in the rest of Scripture. It doesn't dangle in a vacuum. He goes to explain from Scripture where sin came into the human race and the consequence. So where do you think he goes? He says, by, four, by man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the death, for as an animal died, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So... Paul's gospel message goes back to Genesis 3 to say that it was Adam, the first man, who brought sin and death into the world. 
And it had to include physical death because God said you were made from dust, now you're going to go back to dust. That's physical death there. And that's why Jesus, the second person of the, of the Holy Trinity, he took on human nature to live a perfect human life, sinless human life, so he could uh, die a human death and pay the penalty we deserve. And on the cross he said, it is finished, which in Greek is one word, tetelestai, which was written on bills to say paid in full. That's the context of that. So his death on the cross paid in full for every sin a believer will commit. But that wasn't the end of it, of course, because on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. The tomb was empty. Grave clothes were there, but the tomb was empty. He appeared to 500 people at once. He ate fish, which proves he was who he said he was and that God had accepted the sacrifice. And Christianity would have been dead on arrival if they could have produced the body of Jesus, but of course they couldn't. All they could do is make up silly stories like you see in Matthew's gospel. Oh, just tell everyone that when you were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body. Well, think about that. If you were asleep, you couldn't know that, could you? See what I mean? It's, it's a desperate story. But the thing is, in this chapter, is all about the physical resurrection of Jesus. And he connects it with the physical death that Adam brought. And this is Genesis 3. Then he goes to Genesis 2 that the, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So he's contrasting Adam, who is directly called the first man. He's not one of a whole lot of humans evolving from ape-like creatures. He had, he's called the first man. And he's contrasted with Jesus, the last Adam. And if the first man was made from the earth and had to be given life, the last Adam comes from heaven to give life. In fact, Paul in this chapter goes to Genesis 1 as well. It's interesting. And he expects his readers to know the contents of Genesis that he didn't have to explain who Adam was. He expected them to have been taught that, which shows the early church must have been discipled in the cha early chapters of Genesis, right from the beginning of the church, as shown by the fact that Paul didn't have to teach them who Adam was. And this is also where you find the first prophecy of the Messiah. And the Jews understood this, uh, to be a prophecy of the Messiah, that the seed or offspring of the woman would be the one to destroy the power of the devil. And this is a prophecy of the virginal conception of Christ. He's a seed or offspring of the woman because he has no human father. And I use the term virginal conception uh, uh, just to show that life begins at conception. That's the miracle, was the conception, not the birth. And just to remind us, it's a scientific fact that life begins at conception. It's not a religious claim, it's a scientific claim. And just to also, the first person to rejoice at the coming of Jesus was another unborn baby, John the Baptist, at six months. Now, this also goes into the issue of one of the, the, the commonest questions people will get asked is why do we have death and suffering in a world with a God of love? Well, the answer is that God didn't make it that way. That's the big picture answer. Death is an intruder because of sin. But evolution tells you the opposite. It tells you that it was death that led to man. You see, these two pictures are diametrically opposed to each other. See, under evolution, the meat do not inherit the earth. So I'm puzzled by people wanting to tell me that Jesus used evolution to create. That's not the Jesus we see in the Gospels. Now, I'm not saying they're unsaved necessarily. I'm just saying there's a huge logical disconnect in trying to mix the two. 
Now, even the millions of years view has problems. I'll try and explain the issue here. First of all, here's the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and God says everything was very good. In fact, God said it was good seven times. And seven is a number of perfection. There are quite a lot of sevens in the early chapters of Genesis, and this is one of them, seven goods, meaning an ending in very good. And that means there's no death or suffering or nastiness or sin in this created world. But where the millions of years come from, the millions of years came about a bit over 200 years ago where certain people decided to reject divine revelation, including a global flood and special creation. And instead they decreed, they didn't prove, they decreed that we must use processes we see today to explain the effects we see today. So they have to explain the rocks we see by things we observe today. And because things are going much more slowly today, and we're not seeing a global flood, we have to assume millions of years for these slow processes to build the rocks and the fossils we see. That's where the millions of years came from. It wasn't, they didn't prove it, they assumed it by rejecting the flood. The problem, that means that these anemone would be on this pile of rocks millions of, of, that formed over millions of years. But the problem is the rocks contain fossils, and fossils are remains of dead things. You can't escape that. They were once alive and now dead in the fossils. And they also show diseases like gout, osteoporosis, and bone cancer. And that means you have suffering. And then at the end of this, God says everything here was very good which would logically mean that God is calling bone cancer very good. I don't know what very bad is supposed to mean if bone cancer is very good, but this is the logical outcome of, of mixing millions of years with the Bible. You're putting death and suffering and disease before Adam sinned. And you look at how much of the Bible we must get rid of. Like death is called the last enemy. It's not the way God would have used to make things. Romans 5, you've got a contrast uh, that's, that sin came into the world through one man and death spread to all men because all uh, sinned. And this is a contrast between two heads of humanity of Adam, who brought sin and death, with Jesus, who brought righteousness and life. And this contrast is condensed into one verse, next chapter. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, over and over again, we're seeing death is a result of sin. Millions of years puts death before sin, so it disconnects death from sin. But if sin has nothing to do with death, then how could Jesus' death pay for our sin? And look at how much the Bible had to chop out. A lot of that was New Testament verses I've, I've, I've thrown away. That's the wrong way around, surely, because the Bible's God's word. I mean, I've been rebuked by people telling me the Bible's not a scientific textbook, and I usually say, well, thank goodness, because textbooks always go out of date. <laughs> and this also leads to the fact that, that um, when Adam sinned, the whole creation was cursed. Adam was the head, and therefore when he sinned, everything else below him was, was cursed as well, as Romans 8 tells you. And part of that was the change of diet. As humans and animals were created vegetarian. Now, it's not a sin to eat meat today, okay? I mean, God said we could. But look how he said it. He said, I gave you green plants, now I'm giving you meat. So he's affirming the original diet was plants. 
Now, we know it's not a sin to eat meat because Jesus did it. He's sinless, right? He ate the Passover lamb, no question. Ate fish after his resurrection. But it wasn't the original diet, okay? And I can tell you, my home country of Australia, you could say, is very good evidence of a fallen world. I'll try and show you. Thanks very much. Well, the Australian Tourist Commission has asked us to come up with a song that we can perform overseas, a song to help bring the tourists back to Australia. That's right. So we focused on the wonderful wildlife and the fabulous fauna that Australia has to offer. Red back funnel with blue ring, octopus, taipan, tiger snake, and a box jellyfish, stonefish, and the poison <coughs> that lives in a shell that's spicy when you're picking it up. Come to Australia. You might accidentally get killed. Your life's constantly under threat. <laughs> yeah, so we definitely live in a fallen world, all right? But fortunately, in the Bible, uh, God has promised us a much better situation in the future, but there's redemption and restoration. And the thing is, all these words here have a re-prefix, which means it's going back to an initial condition that was once lost. I mean, think about what restoration means. It means going back to the original state, doesn't it? Now, imagine if billions of years of death and suffering was the original state. Restoration means going back to billions of years of death and suffering. How wonderful. But the thing is, the Bible is much better than that because it tells you that restoration means going back to this initial condition before sin came and ruined it. You've got this uh, no more tears or death or crying or pain because those things are a result of the curse on sin and the curse will be abolished. And the tree of life fall once against flourish. What does that remind you of? John was clearly, just like John 1.1 was connecting readers with Genesis 1.1 and this is also connecting uh, readers in the last parts of the Bible, going back to the first parts. It goes full circle. But in the, in the new heaven and the new earth, there'll be no more possibility of sin, so even better than Eden. And so I hope that I've, I've shown you why you can't have millions of years, because that puts death and suffering of humans and animals before sin. So in that case, how did fossils form after Adam's sin? What caused all these fossils? Well, three chapters of Genesis should give you a clue about a globe-covering flood. And see how Jesus affirmed the flood was real, Noah was real, and the ark was real. And when you look at Genesis itself, you look at how God is piling up all the universal language here. All the high mountains of the whole heaven, all flesh died, all swarming creatures, okay? And everything on the dry land. Only Noah was left. I think he's trying to be very clear. This is a globe-covering flood. And the thing is, why build a huge ocean liner-sized ark if, in fact, it's a local flood? I mean, Lot didn't have to build an ark. He just moved somewhere else from Sodom, right? So if not all the world was being flooded, why wouldn't Noah have just gone somewhere else? The reason is there's nowhere to go. It's all underwater. And also think about the rainbow promise. What did God promise not to do? Something again. He promised not to in the global flood, but you got this uh, uh, compromising um, Christian college saying it's a, a local flood. So does that mean that God promised never to send another a local flood? No, God never breaks promises. And what's God promised not to do? Send another global flood. So let's compare these two views. Here is the evolutionary view back from a, an Australian high school biology book around my time at high school, okay, and this is how a fossil forms, they tell us. You have this fishy swimming in the ocean, 
and it dies, it sinks to the bottom, and over millions of years, uh, the mountains erode away, bringing silt into the ocean, burying that fish, and forming a fossil. Next panel, you see how it's almost eroded flat, and the next layer has been formed, okay? That's the evolutionary story. But let's think about what's real science is, you know, test, observation, repetition. Anyone here keep fish? Aquarium, a fish tank? Anyone? Well, that's a shame. Okay, when you, when you lose a fish, well, where do you find the dead fish when you when, when the fish die? Where do you find it? It floats on the top, doesn't it? So already you know this picture doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Because this picture says the fish sinks, but you know they will float. So you don't need to be a PhD to refute evolution. Just think about simple observation like this. That fish will float when they die. I mean, if you're near enough to the sea, are you here? I mean, have you gone scuba diving and finding all the uh, fish on the ocean bottom are slowly fossilizing, have you? <laughs> no. And what happens to a floating dead fish? Eaten up? Yeah, exactly. Eaten and falls apart. See, this is no way to get a fossil. This is ridiculous. Sorry, it is. Um, so here's a better way of getting a fossil. You have the fish swimming along, but this time you have the flood erupting, and the flood began with the fountains of the great deep before the rainfall. Okay, so you have these, this underwater mudslide, huge mudslides going so fast, the poor fish you can't escape, and it's buried. But now the scavengers can't get to it. It's held in place. The thing is, it has to be buried quite deep, because there's certain things that when things rot away, they produce gases, which means that the carcass bloats, and it would float through a, a shallow layer. So it has to be buried quite deeply. I mean, you think of how big some of the fossils are, the, the, the amount of mud must be huge to bury it. And also the, the, the stuff and the, the, the porous material of the, the mud draws away stuff that would actually, uh, the decomposition that would turn the fossil into mush. But once you've got that, uh, the, that, the condition in place, the fossil can form really quickly. It doesn't take millions of years. It can take happen in a few days, as long as you have this porous layer to draw out that yucky stuff, okay? The point, the, the point I'm trying to make is that once you have this burial, you can get things happening quickly. Now, even the soft parts might rot away, but the bones are hard enough, but eventually the, the minerals in the mud will, will, will replace the, the material and turn it into stone. And then you see, see how um, it must be quickly. And when you think of the fossils we have, I think you get an idea of how quickly it must have happened. Like this is a mother ichthyosaur a reptile version of a dolphin, seven feet long thereabouts, okay. And here she is giving birth. I mean, was this poor thing lying on the ocean floor for millions of years, slowly giving birth while slowly being fossilized? I mean, I've heard of long, difficult labor, but really, I mean. And, okay, you people who keep fish, when you feed them, do they eat quickly or slowly? Quick. So what do you think of this then? The middle of his lunch, right? Imagine you go to McDonald's, you eat your cholesterol burger, chomp and then you fossilize in this position. You see how quickly this had to have happened. And the point is that not only do we, are, they, are they, the fossils formed quickly, but layers are often all the way across a continent. In fact, have matching layers on different continents. And not only the layers form quickly, they're, they're enormously wide in extent. So it's not a local flood, it's actually a global thing to cause such huge wide rock layers that we see around the world. And of course, on the land, the flood would eventually get onto the land. I mean, tell me, have you ever seen fossil roadkill? 
So here's a fossil fighting dinosaur. <clears throat> and this is what they think was happening. Again, fossilized very, very, very deeply, no chance to escape and run away. That's how quickly it must have happened. And also in dinosaurs, they've found soft tissue, real original soft tissue, blood cells, and, and even dinosaur proteins and DNA have been found. And uh, Dr. Mary Schweitzer, who's done a lot of the re research for 30 years, was on 60 Minutes explaining this. Mistake. Mary put some fragments of the bone in acid to dissolve away the outermost layer of mineral. But the acid worked too fast, and all the mineral dissolved away. Being a fossil, there should have been nothing left, but there was, and it was elastic, like living tissue. This is the piece? <gasps> no. She showed us video she took under the microscope. That's really what happened? Yes. That's the dinosaur yeah. bone? Without mineral now. That's what was left. It looked like the soft tissue she would have expected to find if it had been modern bone. This was impossible. This bone was 68 million years old. So you see this, and you think, what? You I say, didn't want to tell anybody. <laughs> you'd be ridiculed, yes. right? And so I, I said to my technician, okay, do it again. I don't believe it. And yet, in sample after sample, they were there. Things that looked suspiciously like flexible, transparent blood vessels. She finally mustered the courage to tell Jack. She said she absorbed the bone away and there were blood vessels. And, you know, I was like, shocked. I mean, how could that be? How could that be? That's right. The things Mary was finding inside dinosaur bones. Look at that. Blood vessels and even what seemed to be intact cells pose a radical challenge to the existing rules of science. That organic material can't possibly survive even a million years, let alone 68 million. Well, I mean, I'd rather go by the rules of science. They want to go by their, 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 their assumed faith position of, million, of 68 million years. I'm going by the science here. Well, didn't they didn't cover any version that felt surprised it can survive 68 million years? They did, yes, and that's the whole problem. But why, it's not a surprise to us, though, is it? Um, if you don't believe the millions of years. Yeah, so a lot of different things support the idea that, that, that the layers were not as old as people think they were. So let's uh, look at why I defend the book of Genesis. I mean, see, Jesus said, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See, if the wider church gets a reputation for not believing the Bible on earthly things like creation in six days and a global flood, why is the world going to trust them when they talk about the heavenly things like Jesus as the Son of God and Savior? They might ask, well, when does God start telling the truth? I think we're supposed to start telling the truth from Genesis 1-1. That's when he starts telling the truth. And you see, the Christian faith is not a blind faith. We're supposed to be prepared to make a defense or an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that's in you. We're supposed to have reasons and answers and be prepared for it. In fact, Jesus said the greatest command was love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and your mind. There's nothing in the Bible about checking your brains in at the church door. We're supposed to engage our mind, nourish them on God's word. But let's face it, what happens? Kids come home from school and they get things like, if God made everything, who made God? 
And if, what about dinosaurs dying out millions of years ago? Well, I hope I covered that just now, okay? Doesn't carbon dating prove billions of years? And how do we get different races if we all came from Adam and Eve? And where did Cain get his wife when he wasn't able? <laughs> and these are all found in our book called The Creation Answers Book, which has 60 questions in... Uh, and 20 chapters, including one on creation days, one on carbon dating, one on uh, the dinosaurs, fitting on the arcs, and another one we've got there, so a lot of different things. Uh, this is a, a, the starter pack, which has my first book, Refuting Evolution, designed to answer the high school textbooks. And it has a free DVD in this pack, so it's a real Jewish bargain. <laughs> And if you want to know about how to defend Christianity in general, you might like this book called Christianity for Skeptics, sort of about well, how do you answer Islam and New Age, Hinduism, atheism, why is Jesus the only way to God, that sort of thing there. But now I want to get into the issue of design of things. And it's interesting how even Richard Dawkins, famous atheist and evolutionist, admits uh, biology is a study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Well, of course, I think they have the appearance because that's the reality. Now, he doesn't think so, uh, but the Apostle Paul said there's no excuse for denying because the invisible things are clearly seen by what has been made. So let's look at this. Now, we make things ourselves. I mean, we can often tell something's been designed even if we didn't see it being designed. For instance, an aeroplane. Now, you presumably know the aeroplane was designed, but how do you know? Well, I suggest one reason you know is that it has loads of correct components. But do you realize an aeroplane is made up totally of non-flying parts? I mean, does it cockpit fly? Does the fuselage fly? Does the wing fly? So how do I ever get back to Australia? Use high-speed rail? But okay. Now, the answer is they're organized correctly. So correct component, but also correct organization. And an organization is always, uh, is always caused by an organizer. That's what we see. Everything we, we do know the cause, we assume that organization comes from an organizer. So why not when it comes to things like living things? It's a, it's a, it's a good argument. So let's look at the evolutionary alternative. Evolution basically says matter plus time plus energy produces organization. So I'm going to test this idea of forming an aeroplane that way. The matter is a junkyard full of aeroplane parts. Tornado provides the energy, and you can have as much time as you want. And you get an aeroplane out of that. Does that seem likely? You don't think so? Okay. Now, what if I told you this picture really is the, the tornado hitting the aeroplane and turning it into a junkyard? Is that better? Why? You know why it's better? Well, the principle here is there are many more ways of being a junkyard than being an aeroplane. That's it. And when you have time and energy, you go to the more probable state, which is the junkyard. I mean, this is a very useful principle to understand. I mean, parents, do you ever have to tell your children to mess up their rooms? Well, the reason is there are many more ways of being messy than being tidy. That's it. Now, let's look at this compared with living things. See, living things are unique because they make copies of themselves. Like your children are sort of copies of you. See, jet planes don't have baby jets. 
The Boeing factory makes jet planes, but it doesn't make you a new factory. It's not self-copying, but living things copy themselves. In fact, they're, they're, the living things um, are made of cells. Like your body has trillions of cells and your cells are self-copying. That's how your body grows and repairs itself. So living things are much more complicated than any man-made thing we, we do. I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, for instance, a frog in a blender is not a test for my theory. I'm going to turn the current on so I add energy to the system. And the result's a frog smoothie, okay? Now, if I left this going for millions of years, do you think a frog will ever hop out of this? Again, because there are many more ways of being a smoothie than being a frog. Now let's think about this. If I canned and sterilized this and sealed it up, you know it'd be safe to eat for, for a long time. It doesn't have to be kind of canned frog smoothie. It can be canned Georgia peaches, canned uh, Florida and, uh, oranges. You get the idea. Okay, it's, it's one living thing. It has all the components of living things there. But as long as it's sterile and sealed, no living thing will grow in there to give you food poisoning. Food poisoning comes from living creatures, bacteria. So as long as you're sealed, it won't form in there. And yet this is the ideal environment for any life to form because all the components are there. Uh, and yet it doesn't happen unless the seal gets broken and it comes from outside. But evolutionists believe that life once came from non-living chemicals. They call that chemical evolution. But in the most ideal situation you've got, it doesn't happen. So every time you eat canned food, you should realize evolution doesn't have a leg to stand on. Real science says life only comes from life. It's called the law of biogenesis. Evolution says life once came from non-living chemicals. And just to give you an idea of why this is an issue, is that all living things use energy, and in the, in the cell, the energy is this stuff here called ATP. Now, I'm a chemist by training. I like all this stuff. You don't have to worry about the... the the structure, okay, but just remember, your body makes its own weight in ATP every day and consumes it. Cyanide kills you by stopping ATP production. So it's a pretty important stuff. But now we know it's made by the tiniest motor in the universe. <clears throat> this animated sequence shows the ATP synthase enzyme in operation. The animation is based on an incredible series of scientific discoveries. Only the colors show artistic license. ATP, or adenosine triphosphate, is the energy currency of the cell. ATP is produced by a tiny molecular rotary motor, rotating it up to 7,000 RPM. These are so small that 100,000 would fit side by side in a millimeter. A current of protons drives the motor unlike man-made electric motors, which use electrons. This portion of the enzyme is where adenosine diphosphate is combined with a phosphate ion in the presence of a catalyst to produce ATP, which is then released, making way for the next cycle. A top view of the enzyme shows the sequential operation. Almost every biochemical process in your body requires ATP. Such a nanomachine exhibits all the characteristics of super-intelligent design. ATP is vital for life, and many of these motors were needed before the first living cell could exist. An evolutionary impossibility. 
I've got a whole talk, which is free on our website, about just machines and the living cells. If you look under webinars, uh, there's a talk I've got just on, on these machines. But now I want to get into another issue about design, is this issue of information, the instruction manual. I mean, think about this airplane. What would really show design is finding the instruction manual to build it. And this is what we have on living thing. We not only just have the machines, which are amazing, we have the instruction manual that built them. And this is the famous DNA molecule, which stands for definitely no accident. <laughs> well, actually, deoxyribonucleic acid is what it really stands for, okay? And the thing is, every living thing has huge amounts of information. That's the, the key for evolution to try to work out is how did this information uh, get generated and go uphill. I just want to show you what we see. Uh, the simplest living thing might have about 600 kilobytes of very highly compressed information. It's a micro, it's called a mycoplasma, it's a parasite. It can't even do everything it needs to do, it has to be a parasite. And now we have about three gigabytes, so 5,000 times as much, and horses are pretty similar, because horses have things like um, nose and eyes and blood and, and respiratory stuff and nerves, brain, that bacteria don't have. So there's far more information in humans and horses than there are in bacteria. So the idea is that, that, that this, the top one must go to the bottom one. That's what evolution is supposed to be about. See, change happens. No one doubts that things change. In fact, when you see so-called proofs of evolution in the newspaper or the textbook, it's usually proof that things change, but creationists don't deny things change. It's where they actually change in this uphill direction. Just to show you what, what they believe, um, the evolution, it's called the general theory of evolution. It says everything evolved from a single cell creature which itself came from some sort of primordial soup of chemicals. So you can call this from goo to you via the zoo. So zero information in the primordial soup to say 600 kilobytes in the simplest cell to three gigabytes in humans. So the question is, do we see the information going in the uphill direction? Now I want to give you an example. For instance, breeding a dog to something Darwin thought was evolution and action. So these doggies here have medium fur because on the, they have a gene, they have some DNA that says make short fur. This is what it's meant to do. The thing on the belly means make short fur. It's a symbol for the gene for short fur. Uh, the, one, the right one says make long fur. You have them both, you have medium fur. Now, when you marry and have kids, you pass on half your genes and your spouse passes on the other half, so your kids get half of each of you, so that, that becomes a, a new whole, a unique new whole, okay? So when these dogs marry and have pups, they pass on one or the other. So they can both pass on the short fur gene and the doggy has short fur, as you see. They pass on one of each, the doggies have medium fur like the parents. Now what if they both pass on a long fur gene? <laughs> See, Darwin said this is evolution. We're starting off with medium and getting a, a long and a short. But see, Darwin didn't know genetics. A creationist, a monk living in what's now Czech Republic called Gregor Mendel, discovered genetics. And he realized that God had already front-loaded the created kinds with low, very div genetic diversity, which means that their offspring could have loads of varieties and adapt to different environments, but the information was already front-loaded. There's nothing new there, it's just separated out into the 
uh, the, these new varieties, but the information was already there to start with. And this gives us an insight into the origin of different so-called races. I mean, people call me white. This is white, me. I'm not white, right? I'm actually light brown. Because in fact, all of us have the same pigment. It's called melanin. And the things I've got very little of it in my skin. I've got a bit more on my hair. Well, maybe for not much, not much longer. Um, okay, uh, I've got a medium amount of my eye, which is why eyes are hazel. Blue-eyed people have less of it in their eye. That's it's the same stuff. It's just different, less of it. Um, so it's a, it's a case of not different um, colours. It's different shades of one colour. And that can give you an insight into what Adam and Eve must have looked like. Since they're the ancestor of everyone, I think they must have had a medium skin shade. I think God programmed Adam and Eve with, with genes for dark skin, that's the capital letters, and genes for light skin, which are the small letters. And therefore they would have a medium complexion. So in one generation, just like the dogs, medium fur, one generation produces a short fur and a long fur, if you have the right diversity. In this case, they could pass all their short, their, their, sort of their, their low melanin genes onto their, their son here, who's very fair, all the dark skin genes of their daughter, who's very dark. This daughter is a bit lighter than her parents. This son is a bit darker than his parents. But you see, in one generation, it could have happened. And we see this happening today when mixed race people marry. Often their kids can have a variety of skin shades. Like these two girls are twins. The parents are mixed race, one a so-called black Jamaican father and white English mother. But it's really dark brown and light brown because not black. We're not really black and white. It's dark brown, light brown. It's what we really are. Okay. So you see that these twin girls, one's very fair, blue-eyed, blonde. Okay, and the other is very dark-skinned, dark-eyed, dark-haired. <clears throat> this gives you an idea of what Adam and Eve would have had. Their their family would have looked like. And here's another case of two twin-toned twins. So when you understand the Bible and understand a bit of the, this creation and science, you get, you know, you get an idea of, of, of how the human race uh, got to where the human people got to where it is. I think there's only one human race, actually. There's only one race, the race of Adam, with different, uh, uh, different skin shades, all we have. Now let's get back to this picture here. And imagine what happens if these dogs go through the Ice Age. Who's going to do better in the Ice Age? I believe the very ones are going to be better protected. The other ones are going to die of the cold. And so the only ones that can survive are the furry ones, and the only genes they can pass on are these long fur genes. So the next generation has all long fur. Now, this is natural selection going on. Don't be afraid of it. Creationists understood natural selection before Darwin hijacked it. But the creationists understood that natural selection is a culling force, not a creative force. And they talk about the natural selection as survival of the, of the fittest, but it doesn't explain the arrival of the fittest. It doesn't create anything, it only eliminates what's already there. So it can't be responsible for the diversity and the amazing life that we see around us. And again, a lot of proofs of evolution in the textbooks and the, the newspaper are actually proofs of natural selection, which creationists don't deny. So what's the only game left for evolution to explain uh, the new information is mutation. Now, a mutation is a typo. 
It's a copying mistake in the genes. And here's an example of a typo. The poor bulldog has to be born by C-section. So one generation in the bottle is gone, right? Okay. Or this one here, T&R mutant, totally naked rooster. Now, now uh, Popeyes would probably like it because there's no longer any feathers to pluck, but the poor rooster freezes in winter and fries in summer, so the mutation is no good for the rooster, even if we might, we might select featherless chickens for our convenience, but it's still a loss of something. And so many diseases are the result of mutation. Even just one letter going wrong can cause diseases. So now I'll summarize this little module here, that the real evolutionary picture means that things must go uphill. New genes, new information. But what do we see? We see sorting out what was already preloaded. We see natural selection culling some of this information. And we see the mutations corrupting the information. What we don't see is the information going uphill that we need. And let's see if Richard Dawkins, a famous atheistic evolutionist, can actually answer this. Professor Dawkins, can you give an example of a genetic mutation or an evolutionary process which can be seen to increase the information in the genome? Let's see, even Richard Dawkins couldn't answer. He also said evolution has been observed. It's just that it hasn't been observed while it's happening. <laughs> and he also helps to learn why we do what we do. You see, he said Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. He needs evolution as a crutch for his faith. So what are we supposed to do about it? We're supposed to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. You see, we as a ministry, we're not just about bashing evolution or even proving some sort of designer. We want to bring people to Jesus Christ as our creator and our savior, okay? And I wanted to start this talk and end this talk with Jesus Christ who is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, okay? So how can we best do this? Well, I think one of the best things we have is this creation magazine, which has been going for 45 years now, goes to over, four, over 100 countries around the world. And this has been proven to be one of the best witnessing tools we have. I mean, the Holy Spirit's the one who opens people's hearts, but I think he uses means like um, creation magazine. Like this guy, uh, people gave him, he lent, they lent him the creation magazine. He realized evolution doesn't have a leg to stand on. There must be a creator. So how could I become right with the creator? Well, every magazine presents the gospel, okay? And this shows what a great family equipping tool is, not just for the parents, but also for the parents to teach their children the truth and to witness. I mean, when it comes to children, the question is not whether to witness to our children, but to who is doing the witnessing. So make no mistake, your kids are being witnessed to. So let, us, let it be the right sort of witness. So that's why we have a chance to subscribe today. I'll just explain what, what's going on before we pass the clipboard. I'll just explain what we have here. The clipboard has this on, okay? And you've got a choice of one year or two year. Of course, we recommend two year because of a bulk discount and you get extra gifts as well. Okay, so what, what it looks like is something like this. We have your name, and we've got to know who to send it to, address so we know where to, where to send it to. But also, please put your email, because it comes with a free digital one. That's one I've had in the last few years is a free digital one. So you can have the, the paper copy for yourself, and you can give the digital code for up to five different people around the world. 
and they can get their read their digital version. And, so, and when this comes around, please take it off after you've filled it in. Don't go away with it. We can't do anything if it's gone away. So please give it to Donna and the nice gentlemen who are helping out. They're volunteers totally, really giving up their own time because they see how important this is. So, so please take it and you can receive some goods. you want to pass around? Thanks for your, for your patience. And they, if you pay for one year, you get the current issues on the table there. And you also get the digital version to share. Uh, right away, but also if you pay for two years, uh, we get the discount. But also, there's a free DVD that's the Darwin documentary, which we made for the Darwin bicentennial, and that has uh, you know on location shots like Galapagos Island and the, and the, and the South America and Down House, where he lived most of his life, and what made him tick, and also the fallout. I showed you a clip from the video called The Fallout, it's a really good one about how we, we show that creation really does make a difference. And it's a quarterly magazine, so uh, on the thing, on the times it doesn't come out, we have other very interesting update newsletters which are very informative. So here's an example of some older issues, how the color is very attractive and it's getting better all the time. And here's a classic article from the archives, how do dating methods work? And not about how boys meet girls, it's about how old things are and how we know. And it's a fountain in northern England, which is so rich in minerals that it turns teddy bears and other soft things into stone. Every magazine has an interview with a PhD scientist, which is really good because you've got people who uh, you've got kids going to, into science class. They're told no real scientist believes in evolution. Well, every magazine shows you no, that's not true. And we do have uh, things like this. So remember I showed you this one here? That's one of the articles in the magazine, the two-tone twins. And also an article I wrote a while back about uh, how carbon-14 actually is a very powerful ally of the biblical time scale because it decays so quickly. So if you find it in things, it means it can't have existed long enough. Otherwise, all of the C-14 would have gone. And so when you find C-14 in something like a diamond, which is meant to be billions of years old, well, it can't be that old because the T-14 would have gone. So I wrote an article called Diamonds, a Creationist's Best Friend. And a lot of design articles, one of my favorite talks is design. So one thing is how humans are imitating what's found in nature. And there's also four pages for the kids. I'm actually writing the kids' pages at the moment on the flood. I'm doing a, a big uh, series of articles on the flood uh, for the kids. And speaking of kids, we have uh, interesting things like, this is a very brand new book, actually. It's my book on astron creation astronomy for kids, which is based on some old some creation magazine series on astronomy, but now we've updated and put a glossary in, so it's actually a good astronomy book for kids. I think a lot of everyone will learn from it, actually. I think most adults will learn from this one, hopefully. Other books you might like, this is, a, this is for older kids, maybe middle school and above. I think adults will learn again a lot from books like this as well and this dinosaur book. Uh, one of my newest books is, is called Titans of the Earth, Sea and Air. This is a, a, a more of high school and adult book on dinosaurs. So I really think that, that um, parents and grandparents should know more than their kids and grandkids about any topic, including dinosaurs. So this will help you do that. And so a lot of different things there. So now, uh, if you like, I can actually just open up for Q&A if you want to do that. Is that right? Uh, Okay, the only uh, restriction I have with Q&A times is that what you say must end in a question mark. <laughs> but otherwise, I'm free to uh, go ahead and ask, uh, ask away. Yes, sir. Uh, in our church staff, there was a comment recently to say, even within our church staff of like eight or ten, 
differences of opinion about the age of the earth. Yes. So, you know, within Christian circles, you can have a different level of a conversation mm -hmm. uh, versus witnessing to non-believers mm -hmm. and how, and therefore, like, we could come up with two different answers or strategies. So how, for the non-believers, you know, like, how invested should we be in trying to prove our point? And make well, I mean, you'd be surprised about how many non-believers will, will, will have you on about that. I mean, we've got these uh, examples of this where... Uh, an old earth Christian and a young earth were trying to witness an unbeliever, and the unbeliever just realized the old earth Christian, you don't really believe your own book, do you? That's what it amounts to, because you're not, if, you, if you start with the Bible alone, you're never going to get long ages from it. You're not going to get it from the scripture. It's always from outside the scripture. They're always trying to accommodate the Bible into outside ideas. It never comes from a text itself. And some of the unbelievers will recognize that this is what they're doing. So, um, and at least, even though they don't, don't, have, don't believe the young earth guy, they at least realize the young earth guy believes his own book. So I, I do think we should stand firm on everything. We shouldn't uh, sort of... Uh, um, soft pedal things that the world doesn't like. I mean, where does it stop? I'd like to know. Uh, maybe we should we should soft pedal on the marriage as a man and a woman because the world doesn't like that anymore. I mean, where do we where do we draw the line? Maybe we should allow abortion if, because that's what the feminist movement wants to have. I mean, it's a, it's a slippery slope. Where do you stop? I think we just if the Bible says it. We we should believe it. Uh, is my thing. And again, I'd like to challenge the people who want to believe in old earths. Where do you find that in Scripture? You just can't find it in scripture. You can't find millions of years. You can't find long creation days. You can't. And the issue, of course, that I emphasize in the talk about all the long age views puts death and suffering of humans and animals before sin. And that, is a, that clearly undermines the gospel. Uh, I don't see any way around that. And my commentary talks about that. I've got another book called Refuting Compromise. Uh, available from our site, which goes into the um, problems trying to mix long ages with with the Bible and Christianity. I'm not saying they're not saved. I don't say that. I'm saying there's a huge, again, a logical disconnect in trying to mix the two. I'm very careful to say that we're not saying that you have to be a young earther to believe to be a Christian. We don't say that. People lie and accuse us of saying that, but we don't. I'm making it very clear, okay? Question. Yes, sir. Well, there's been a lot of talk about um, visitations from possibly aliens. Right. Yes. And that the government understands that these creatures have been here, uh, but will not make it public because they say that we're not ready for it. It will disrupt uh, the institution of religion and bring, into this question, bring creation into question. And so, what would be. I mean, first of all, I mean, think about like, since when is the government competent at doing anything? <laughs> You really think the government could cover it up if they wanted to? I mean, they couldn't cover up the Watergate scandal. Do you think they'd cover up aliens? Um, aren't they supposed to be much more intelligent than us? How could our government cover up beings which are much more intelligent than us, supposedly, who have the technology to, to get here from, from stars, and our government's supposed to be able to cover it up? I think you're overestimating the intelligence of the government here. Sorry. Um, <laughs> But also, I mean, theologically it doesn't work. And the, and the reason is, you see, the Bible says earth created on day one. 
uh, other stars on day four, which means planets around other stars on day four. That's one thing. So Earth is the center. Also, when Adam sinned, the whole creation was cursed. That's what we see in Romans 8, which would mean the Vulcan and Klingon homeworld would have been cursed by what Adam did. Okay? Uh, and also Jesus, he took on human nature to die for human sin. He didn't take on Vulcan nature to die for Spock's sin. So the incarnation, again, is something unique to Earth. Okay? And there are also some scientific issues uh, which are pretty important. Uh, like, for instance, um, how do you get from here to the, from there to here? When you think of a distance, the nearest star is four light years away. So light, uh, speed, speed of light, four years to get here, okay? Now, I've calculated that if you, if you try to um, even make a tiny spacecraft, I mean, smaller than the, the, the lunar module, try to get it up to a third of light speed. I worked out that the, all the energy production on Earth could not do that. To get the, even a small spacecraft, even to one third of light speed, where you take uh, 12 years to get to the nearest star. And also, at that speed, any turning would produce horrible lurching force that would kill you unless you turned at a radius much larger than the orbit of the furthest planet, which is now Neptune, okay? Not Pluto. So you couldn't turn without G-force. And you could, you'd, it'd take four, about five days to stop safely, otherwise, again, G-force would, would crush you. And the thing is, a snowflake hitting the, the craft at even one-third of light speed would, would be a, um, a several tons of TNT-type explosion. That's a snowflake. So if you see a dust particle in your way, you can't stop in time because of G-forces. You can't turn in time because of G-forces. You have to collide with it, which means you get this huge explosion. Even, and this is talking about um, sublight speeds, high sublight speeds, you've got this problem. So these are these are problems with physics, uh, with the <clears throat> uh, with trying to explain aliens. And there's a book here called Alien Intrusion, which I recommend if you're interested in the, in the topic. Aliens, get the book called Alien Intrusion. There's also a DVD documentary about it too. We've got the documentary called Alien Intrusion. I really recommend both of those. And the, the the documentary really goes into the spiritual aspects as well about how uh, real evangelical Christians who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit are immune from the alien abduction type experience, which which means makes me think that some of the experiences are actually demonic in origin. I say most of the sightings are, are, are sort of mis mis I just that's just misidentification. And I mean, ninety percent probably just uh, things that have been misidentified, but maybe. A, a residual 10% might be demonic in origin. So I, really be, I don't really want to get into, uh, I advise against trying to get into those things that could be quite dangerous. But the Holy, indwelling Holy Spirit um, protects you from these things. And that's what people have testified when they became real Christians, these experiences of abduction type experiences, uh, they ended. Uh, yes, in the, in the red first, pink, red, yeah, yeah. Uh, Romans 8, it's a very uh, clear statement. Romans 8 talks about the whole creation being cursed. And when you look at all the commentaries on Romans, see, even if a commentator doesn't believe in Genesis, he said that Paul clearly believed in Genesis. Paul clearly taught that this um, whole creation being subjected to futility was when, when Adam sinned and the fall happened. That's what the commentators all say about Romans. So, so we're talking about the fall affecting the whole creation there is, is affected by, by sin. And we see the example of that with the animals becoming meat-eating as opposed to originally vegetarian. Okay, um, yes, so the back there, the corner. Uh, 
first? Yeah, Paul and I. Yeah. To describe the minority when it comes to things like natural selection, when their trait is only in rare, in rare cases. Well, I'm not sure what the question is, sorry. I'm not sure what you're asking. Well, I mean, uh, you've got some rare genes which may, may be neutral, you see. It's, uh, natural selection may not see it because so it's neutral. It doesn't affect your... Uh, reproductive success, so therefore a mutation might persist, but it's actually quite hard for a mutation to stay. Uh, so a lot of the mutations in the human population must have happened quite early, like the O blood group is a mutation of A, and yet now it's the most common blood group. So I think it would have happened before the flood even, that's how early, so it actually got um, in the, 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 the eight survivors of the flood and passed that way. I think things like blonde hair and blue eyes might have happened later in the, uh, in the human history. That's why only a few, only one section of the human race is affected by it. So it's a case of how early the mutation happened. And uh, yeah, it, it might be by chance some might survive, but may not, may not have any selective advantage either way. I suspect that the, the O blood group did have some sort of selective advantage because sometimes See, a virus attacking you has to latch onto a receptor. And what the O, the O has actually lost the receptor that the A has. So it's lost the, uh, one of the antigen receptors, and therefore it seems that some viruses are less able to attack um, O blood type than A, and that might be why it's actually become so prevalent. Even though it's actually a downhill change, it might be have that advantage of being resistant to a virus. Oh, yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. So when Christ came, fully God, fully man, so where did his blood come from? Was Mary the host or was she? Well, uh, Mary must have been the biological ancestor, no question there. I don't think Mary was a surrogate because otherwise you almost deny the humanity of. Uh, of, of Jesus if he's, if, he's a, if he's a surrogate. He had to have descended from Mary because Jesus is foretold to be the kinsman redeemer, which means it's a blood relationship. He's foretold to be the son of, of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam. So again, it points to a blood connection. So Mary would have provided maybe half the genes and the Holy Spirit provided the other one. And the Holy Spirit overshadowing is what prevented original sin. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, the conception of Jesus and Mary, and so therefore no original sin. The Holy Spirit must have provided, say, the Y chromosome because Jesus is male. Males have Y, but the females are XX, so there must have been the Holy Spirit providing the Y and probably the other half. Mary providing the ovum half the genes and the Holy Spirit providing the other half. So you still got the connection of Jesus with the rest of humanity through Mary. So I think you had to have Jesus as a biological descendant of Mary. I don't agree with those who say he was a, that Mary was just a sagra. I, I don't agree with that for the, for the reasons I mentioned. Okay. Someone at the back? Yeah, yellow? Yeah, yellow shirt. Um, so, when we're talking about the billions of years. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, what happens when we Oh, yeah. And discovered 
Well, it's interesting. They won't say they're wrong, but they're just not using those things anymore. Like when I was at high school, Ramapithecus was supposed to be a human ancestor. Now they believe it's an orangutan ancestor. And back in my father's time, it was things like uh, the uh, Nutcracker Man, but they didn't believe that was a human ancestor. But they don't say we were wrong. They say we, we were just not, not mentioning it, quietly not mentioning it. Or at all even. But some textbooks are still using stuff that the evolutionists reject, the, the, the informed evolution recipient. Like, like for instance, the... Um, embryo diagram supposedly showing um, similarity at a fish stage. That's a complete forgery, but textbooks are still using that. Even now, I mean, it's, 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 some which it's, are using blatant forgeries. Others are just sort of using the current things and sort of quietly abandoning the things they used to think. I don't believe so, no. Question anyone? I thought I just the hand. Yes, ma'am. Yes. It is, in fact, related to the flood. In fact, the flood, in fact, is the cause of the ice age. I'll explain what the issue is here. Now, the ice age didn't mean the whole planet was covered by ice. Uh, a lot of the planet, like Siberia, was not covered by ice. Okay, but certainly, the South Island, of New Zealand, was covered. I mean, you got things like Fiord Land to show that Australia wasn't affected by the ice age too much, though. A lot of North America and a lot of Europe was affected by it, okay? The thing is, how do you get an ice age? In fact, the, the evolutionist explanations don't work. Because they talk about the cycles where the Earth itself cools. But think about what that would mean, though. To get an ice age, you have to have ice on the continents. And that happens because you have snowfall. But how do you get snowfall? You have to have clouds, and clouds come from evaporation. But how do you get evaporation if the, if the ocean's cooler? You're reducing evaporation, but you want to increase it. So somehow, you must get warm oceans and cool land. And the flood would do that because the flood would produce warm oceans when the fountain of the great deep bring lava and hot water to the ocean. The ocean temperature would ri rise, and therefore you're getting more evaporation, but volcanism would produce ash and aerosols that would block out the sunlight. In fact, very large volcanic eruptions in modern history have been known to drop the Earth's temperature a little bit. So imagine on a much larger scale, the Earth's temperature would, would drop quite a lot. So you have this combination of warm oceans and cool continents, and the flood would produce that. Now, eventually, the ocean would cool down, and the volcanic ash and aerosols would dissipate, and the, the land would warm up. So probably the whole process would probably take about 700 years from beginning to end. But it's interesting that the, um, the flood is the only really th real thing that really explains the Ice Age. And there's a chapter in the, this book about the Ice Age, by the way, just so you know. Question. Yes, sir. So when, uh, when people try to mock us for, for the flood, they sometimes they'll bring up Australia. Yeah, yeah. Like, ironically, I guess you know about. Yeah, quite a lot. Yeah. Um, what, what do we? What, what, what's, where are we at on that? What do you like to say? Well, I mean, the thing is, before the flood, there was probably one continent, and Chapter Eleven of this book talks about that too. I mean, in Genesis 1, it talks about the waters being gathered into one place and the dry land appeared. That's through day three of creation week. And that seems to point to a single pre-flood landmass that broke up 
very quickly during the flood via catastrophic plate tectonics, and that's what we think is the main cause of the flood. It's catastrophic plate tectonics happening very rapidly, okay? So that's um, chapter 11. I'll just show you what I'm talking about here. Um, where you have this very rapid movement of the plates going underneath. It's called sub, pardon me, subduction, where the plate goes underneath really, really quickly and dragging the continents up and dragging water over the continents. And also, where the, where the plates break apart, you've got magma coming to the ocean, causing massive evaporation, and that evaporation would fall as torrential drain, uh, rain. So it talks about the fountain of the Great Deep would happen first, and the rainfall would be a consequence of this magma and evaporation. And the, the evidence for the, the, what this has happened is that some, uh, when we look at the uh, rock in these, in these places, it's still quite cool. Now, if it had been slow and gradual and millions of years ago, the, the rock down here would have had time to warm up to the surrounding temperature, but it's still a lot cooler, a thousand degrees or so cooler than the surrounding, which means it hasn't been there that long. So you look at this, it looks so like this is actually in place very quickly and not that long ago, a few thousand years ago, not millions of years ago. So that's the evidence that this thing has happened much more quickly. So that's chapter 11 of the Creation Answers book anyway. Question, anyone? Yes, I see you in the striped shirt, yeah. Yeah. So, and again, it talks about the earth being void without form. Yes. Well, it's, it's, it's void and without form because God had not yet to start to fulfill and to form it. So, of course, it's going to be without formless and void. It doesn't mean it's a judgment. It doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean that God hasn't started forming and filling it yet. That's all. And that's chapter 3 of the Creation Answers book, too. So. Yeah. Yes, sir. I think I've been interested in science before I became a Christian, okay? Um, so I managed to get away with being a creationist and a scientist. I think I already uh, started my PhD when I was sort of, sort of out into creationist, okay? Uh, whether it would happen nowadays with the universe becoming far more woke than they, they, uh, they were back then um, so long ago. Um, I wouldn't say universities were, were very welcoming to, to creation, but they weren't as intolerant as they do seem to be now. Even universities in, in the red states seem to be very intolerant of conservatism and Christianity. Uh, so a lot of creation will to keep their heads down to try to sort of uh, get their degree first and not being unfairly uh, penalised because of their belief system. I mean, not supposed to discriminate, but it didn't, didn't stop them. I mean, what, what it took a Supreme Court decision to stop uh, universities discriminating on racial grounds just recently, right? I mean. And that was like pulling teeth to actually make them uh, uh, accept candidates on merit and not on skin shade. I mean, goodness. Uh, which is the way it should be, because we're all one blood, right? We're all, uh, all descendants of Adam. Oh, there's a lady behind you there. I'll give it back to you, okay? Lady had a hand um, first. I believe in the six days of creation. That's good. Yes, I or think is, so. Or is there other science that 
Well, I think the best way is, is going by the Earth's birth certificate, which is the Bible. The Bible, God has created, he's told us how long ago it was by looking at the ages at the birth of, 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 the, of X at the age of X plus one on the line. See, even if there were missing people in, the, in Genesis 5, I don't think there are, but even if there were, you still got Adam was 130 years, became the father of Seth. Which means 130 years between them. Even if there are people between them, there's still only 130 years. There's no time gap in Genesis 5 and 11. Okay, that's why I think you can actually date. Uh, you got a flood to Abraham, and then you got other dates like Abraham to the to entering Canaan, and these other dates here. And then you go down to the fall of the first, the Solomonic Temple under Nebuchadnezzar. And we can date that historically. Other, other secular sources date that. So you do have a rough idea. And it's interesting that people, scholars who use the Hebrew text without outside ideas and pinging, uh, would always come up with a date of around 4000 BC thereabouts. Okay? I'm not going to quibble about a few years here and there. I'm not committed to 4004 BC. Okay? I calculated about 4175 BC. I'm not, you come up with a different one, that's fine. But it's interesting everyone came up with around the 4000 BC mark. And if you use the Greek text, which I advise you not to, but if you use the Greek Septuagint, you come up with 5500 BC. Still no room for millions of years. So that's how you do it. So you in front there, sir? Yeah. Um, I guess my question is, is when are a lot of these Christian PhDs going to, and I know that there are some are, going to stop preaching to, obviously, a biased audience and pushed further into academia. Um, tell me an audience that's not biased. Okay, I mean, if you no, can I find... Mean, this, is the, this is the very sympathetic audience. Okay, but I've actually spoken to them. I mean, the, the um, academic audience is very unsympathetic. I've spoken to them too. No, I know. That, that, that's yeah. my point. And I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking broadly. Okay. Generality. I know that there are some and it's starting to pick up steam, but it, it seems to me this is the wrong place to be, and what I mean by wrong place is you don't need to convince us. Oh, I do, I think. Be surprised. But the, there's going to be, I guess what I'm getting at, and I'm going to jump bad job saying that is, is a creationist PhD teaching a university, and I know there's a lot of roadblocks there is going to be, in my opinion, way more effective. Well, in the, our 45 years of experience, we find the opposite is true. I mean, first of all, we, we, the church might believe it, but can they defend it is a question. I mean, there, I mean, we have had resistance in some of the Bible Belt churches, or oh, why do we need you guys? We believe it. Well, the owner says, well, okay, you may believe it, but can you defend it? And are your children ending up believing it, or is the church a lot of grey hair and, and bold people? No, 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 no disrespect intended, but it's often where are the young people in the church? Okay, so, so therefore there is a need to reach the church to try to realise people, you, so you know why you believe something, and also people from our church go to universities. And that's how I think we reach the university, by, by training the people in the church to go to the universities. And then we have, like in Australia, where, where, where some lecturers are concerned that there are too many creationists coming in to do biology. And what can we do about this? Oh, let's have a genetics, and a genetics course to convert them. And after the genetics course, and they see how com complex the genetic system is, more people are creationists at the end of it than they were at the beginning of it. Okay? <laughs> 
And another thing you've got to people saying, well, evolution is foundational for biology, but we can't get people to take evolutionary biology course because it has no practical application. Okay, so again, some, some disconnect on their side. But we do find that reaching the churches is the best way to get to the workplace, to get to the academia. Uh, first of all, I mean, we go to a university, who's going to come and hear us? Probably the Christian groups are the main ones going to hear us. Or people, if they do wait, they're trying to sort of take us down. Well, I, I can handle those people, but often the people who really need to hear us don't come. While you go to a church, often people are there because it's their church, and therefore they're hearing something for the first time and realizing for the first time that this is an important issue and not just a side issue. And that's often the case where we go to churches and people realize, well, hey, this is, this is actually important. We need it for our kids. So, so yeah, I think uh, the, the most effective re outreach of people is starting in the church. So, yeah, no, no, I, I'm, I'm not saying it. The reason why I ask you is because I've, I've dealt with, I mean, not a lot, but I do, I do more fingers and toes to count PhDs and professors in terms of mostly in the philosophic and ethics realm, but also a lot of in the mathematics realm mm -hmm. where... <clears throat> They have never been approached, even by faculty members who are Christian, in, they won't even talk about it. Because I, I know a few Christians who are in teaching positions, and they, will, they just will not talk about it. They, I mean, you can blame this on Thomas Aquinas if you want, but they, when they go to school, they will, well, now I'm in professor mode, and I'm like, eh, that's that's not a Christian worldview. Well, but hence the reason we've got to go to the churches that actually hopefully some of these people will be attending churches and attending one of these talks that we give, you see, and realizing that, hey, it's something we can talk about. And in fact, everyone has a worldview. It's, 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 it's not a case of just the Christians being biased. Everyone has a bias. It's a question of which the best most, and most rational bias to have. And that's why we go to churches, and, and, and we do have sometimes these professors attending the churches or, or high up people attending. So that's how often we've reached people um, through these ministries. In fact, even some of the fairly simple presentations have actually impressed some of these high, these high powered academics because, uh, let's face it, I mean, just about everyone is a layman outside their own field. Yeah, so, so uh, we're not afraid to sort of be fairly quite basic when we do a first talk to a church, even if there are academics in the audience, they're going to learn things from it outside their field. Anyone got another question? Or, 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 yes, sir. Um, this is more theological. Oh, okay. Well, I'm using the word chance to mean an uncoordinated plurality of causes. It's just a shorthand way of saying that. That's all I'm saying, okay? Uh, as far as we're concerned, it's just an uncoordinated plurality of causes. I mean, uh, it's nothing, to, uh, no reflection on the sovereignty of God or anything like that. I'm just talking about from our perspective, uh, it's, it's something which we would call chance, even though, of course, the God who knows everything, it's not chance, okay? Well, I believe so. But as far as we're concerned, we can call it chance because we don't, don't have the uh, causal connection that we have the ability to understand. In fact, in quantum mechanics, it's probably beyond humans to, to, uh, to go beyond a certain way because of the uncertainty principle. So there are limits to what we can do 
as finite creatures. So that's all we can do is talk about chance as opposed to saying it's not, not, not a denial of God's sovereignty or anything like that. Yeah, go ahead. Would you say it's reasonable to say that evolution is not really a science problem, but it's a heart problem? Because if evolution yeah. can't be true, then you have to admit there is God. I think mean, that's a lot of it, but when it comes down to it, I mean, that's what Romans 1 is even saying, that people are without excuse, and therefore they've willfully rejected the evidence of creation. It's, it's a willful rejection. Uh, and also evolution and creation are matters of history more than science because they're things that have occurred in the past and are not occurring today. So there's a, there's a historical issue, but it is, it's sort of a heart problem as well, yeah, um, when it comes down to it. Uh, but I also, I mean, what I don't want to say is uh, what, what some people have said is that well, evolution wasn't the issue, sin was. But that's like saying that plane crashes are caused by gravity. Yeah, it's true, but it doesn't really help you very much because, I mean, gravity's working anyway. It's a, universe, a universal thing, and it doesn't explain why some, most planes uh, don't crash and, and why this plane did crash. Okay, so even gravity caused the crash, it doesn't help you. Same with sin, it's a universal. We're all descendants of Adam, therefore sin is universal. And it doesn't explain why we have such apostasy when, uh, at a time when evolution gets pushed, uh, when, when kids start learning about evolution, that's how often correlates to people leaving the kids leaving the church and the faith you see so there's a connection there and it's not enough just to say sin is the problem when you've got the specific doesn't explain the specific reasons when kids start leaving the church and it correlating so strongly when evolution gets pushed into the into the curriculum maybe one more question then we can uh, have a look at the books and there's some nice refreshments which i think are waiting for us to, to finish so we can enjoy it so who, who hasn't asked the question first who hasn't asked the question yeah, yes okay Oh, yes, it's a very important article because arguments we think creationists should not use. I wrote that myself, actually, a number of years ago. I've tried to keep it up to date. Uh, there's actually a video uh, that you can get on it, too. Uh, one of them is that Darwin recanted on his deathbed. No, it didn't happen. Okay. Another one is that a Japanese trawler fished up a plesiosaur around the coast of New Zealand. No, that was a basking shark. Another one is uh, the old canopy theory. That's something most creationists have moved away from, the canopy theory to explain the flood. And most creationists don't believe that anymore. Uh, what's another one? Um, oh, I should, should know a few of these off by heart. Uh, Paluxy uh, tracts of dinosaurs and humans. As the human tracts are a bit disputable, so we think it best not to use that, okay, uh, until we know more. I think it's, if it's doesn't convince educated creators, why do you think it's going to work on the evolutionists? Okay. Um, uh, moon dust, another one. Yes, yeah, so moon dust is proof of, of, of a, of a short age. It's just not valid. It doesn't prove things either way. It doesn't prove long or short. So something the creation should not use is the moon dust argument. Uh, the shrinking sun argument, probably not. What you can use with the sun is that the sun is actually getting hotter as it ages. That's undisputable. So you go trace it back. Uh, billions of years should be too cool to support life on Earth, and yet they, they believe the Earth's climate was warm billions of years ago, and yet the sun was too cold to support that billions of years ago. That's a, the faint young sun paradox is still a valid one. Okay, so there are a few like that, yeah. Well, thanks for that question. Sorry? I will say, what about the moon retrograde theory? I think the moon retrograde theory is not, not a bad one. 
I think the moon retrograde is reasonable because, in fact, you know, we went to the moon 50 years ago, and one thing that was dropped on the moon was a, a retro reflector, so it, it's, it uh, reflects light in the direction that it comes to you. So they can shine lasers, and you can measure the distance. And, it, and the moon really is receding about one and a half inches per year, I think it is. It's, it's, it's not a very big one, but it's, it's definitely receding, and that's what we see from the physics that as the, Earth, um, the, the Earth's rotation drags on the Moon, pushes a bit further out in its orbit, but at the same time, the Earth's actually being slowed down slightly as well. Very hard to measure that part, but the Moon is definitely receding. And uh, you trace it back, and then you work out that, say, only one and a half billion years ago, they should be touching. And the thing is, the effect of the, this recession effect gets uh, gets stronger and stronger the closer they are. It's, a, it's an inverse sixth law, a power law. So actually, would uh, uh, get very strong. You have, to, and the closer you are, the worse the tides are as well. The tides are an inverse cube of distance. So ten times closer, the tides are a thousand times bigger. Okay, so you've got problems there. So those those are some interesting. That I think is actually an argument you can use. Okay, well, thanks very much for your attention. I'll hand back to the boss here. Thanks very much for your uh, hospitality. So I'll pray very quickly. If you didn't bring food, don't worry about it. We're Christians. We do share. Uh, it's not dinner, uh, but please uh, avail yourself. Uh, if you want to talk to the doc or check the book table out, whatever you want to do, uh, you're free to do that. But again, thank you, doctor, for, uh, for coming. Uh, greatly appreciate that and the ministry that's going on there with CMI. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful, Lord, for, again, uh, ministries such as CMI and the work they do to help us, Father, to have a better understanding, a clearer understanding, a deeper understanding of all that's gone on in history that's recorded for us in the Word of God. We pray, Lord, that our, our faith would be strengthened, that we'd be encouraged, and that, Father, we'll continue to do the work necessary to understand these things. And we just thank you, Lord, for how it kind of ignites our mind and and we're just kind of in awe of all the things that you've accomplished and uh, really just looking at the, uh, the complication of creation and how it continually points to you. Father, we ask now that as we are dismissed, you keep us safe as we go home. Thank you, Father, for those who have brought uh, food and desserts. We ask, Father, for your blessing on them. Thank you, Lord, for the food. Bless our time together. As always, Father, we are grateful for all that you've done. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.